So when you think of the millions of Jewish people alive who profess that the God of Abraham, Moses, and David is a key part of their heritage, how does that make our heart respond? It's a strange thing. Paul says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's Romans 10:1. So this morning, that's kind of what we want to have for maybe this group of people that we don't understand super well. We want Paul's burden to become our own. So how can we obey 1 Peter 3.15 and always be prepared to make a defense of our faith to our Jewish friends or Jewish neighbors or Jewish people that we meet? So that's what we want to explore today. We'll do it in three ways. Just a basic introduction on Judaism, a little bit of history. Um, Secondly, we'll look at a handful of biblical themes and a few questions that are Jewish or uh, biblical themes and we'll look at a lot of verses. Um, inside of your handout, which I printed incorrectly, sorry for ruining your life, there's a ton of verses in there. Um, these are just the ones we'll be reading aloud. I just wanted to have them so you guys can look, look them up as we go. But there's a ton in there that are super useful. And also, thirdly, we'll be looking at a, just a few uh, common questions that a Jewish person might ask you or that they struggle with in their life dealing with Christianity. So, what is it that defines Judaism? Um, Let's look at the Jewish history and some major Jewish movements that happened. So, as we'll see in a moment, uh, modern expressions of Judaism are quite diverse. Uh, Many Jews today don't even profess to believe in God, uh, while others seek to follow God's law with exacting precision. So, while... uh, very similar to many religions, you have the more orthodox and you have the more liberal types. But there's this one unbreakable thread that binds all forms of Judaism together, and that is the history of the people of Israel. That's kind of what binds us to it in a way as well. So for the sake of time, I'll assume that we're familiar with the basic Old Testament storyline, that being that in the Old Testament, Um, God redeems the descendants of Abraham and he gives them his law and he gives them his presence and making them his special people, right? But you'll also remember that they later rebelled and they were sent into exile by God, but God was gracious. And Ezra and Nehemiah in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem with some of the Hebrew people and they rebuild the city, the wall, the temple. So that's kind of the Old Testament lay of the land. If you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, go read it because it's incredible. Um, Do not avoid it. So after the Old Testament, that's kind of where we're jumping in. During the time after the Old Testament books were written, many Jews remained dispersed throughout the various empires that ruled during this sort of four to five century time before the birth of Jesus. And official worship could only take place at the temple. So Jewish communities throughout the dispersion, they devoted themselves to the study of the Torah by establishing all these synagogues. This is probably starting to sound familiar, all these different synagogues like Jesus went to later. And in these synagogues, teachers or rabbis would develop various interpretations of the laws that Israel cherished. Um, Interpretations of the laws, interpretations of the laws, right? This is a period of time they saw major diversification within Judaism and a whole bunch of variations developed during the first century, including the Pharisees, the Sadducees, I think there's even something called the Essenes, uh, who read about, we read about them in the New Testament. And as you may know, many Jews in the first century came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah. And those early Jewish believers, as we look from 70 AD to today, Um, Like us, they knew that Jesus had fulfilled the need for the temple and the sacrifices and the offerings. But most Jews still saw the temple with its, as, as the central place 
where God met with them and received his prescribed worship. Uh, so you can imagine it, it was very earth-shattering um, where in, in the year 70 AD, the Romans took over Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. Judaism would never be the same again after that. And that's a tough, that's something to remember, like when you're reading those old texts, like in the temple, in the temple, in the temple. It's like, how do I do these things? <laughs> the temple's been destroyed. Um, it would be heartbreaking if that's what you're basing your whole life off of. So because of this, Jews, they dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, where they again turned to the study of the Torah um, in synagogues. They used that to define their religious identity. They meticulously cataloged these rabbinic teachings that had been passed down orally into this massive collection of volumes known as the Talmud. You've probably heard of this, the Talmud. It means instruction or it means learning. So think of the Talmud as a collection of commentaries on the Torah. They provide this ridiculously huge range of ideas of these ideas, these questions, these applications, stories, and traditions. Again, notice it's a range of interpretations. Um, I was reading, I got to read about this this week actually as a providential God thing. Got to read about Judaism in my class. And it's like, so the Torah, the Torah is like this. Like this is <laughs> those, that huge section of the Bible. It's like this. And then they made the Talmud. And the Talmud is broken down into this, they made this first volume of text that's basically, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's kind of like if a bunch of Christian theologians got together and they did a podcast together and they just talked about very specifically like what the Bible means and then they wrote down everything they said and then put it into a book. It's like super specific commentaries on what the Torah says. So you got like the Torah and you have like the Mishnah, it's super, super long. And then they made something later that's like, I don't know if the mission is enough. Let's go even deeper and more crazy. And they made like the Gemara, which is this giant, even bigger um, commentary. But the Gemara and the Mishnah together, that's the Talmud. So when you meet Jewish people, they're living by this giant thing of commentary. And the Torah's over here. And they love the Torah. It's great. <laughs> they're living by this and all of this. So, I don't know. It sounds very exhausting and difficult to me. Mishnah is M-I-S-H-N-A-H, I believe. Ooh, this is tough. And Gemara, as far as I know, is G-E-M-A-R-A-H. How dare you? Thank you for the question. <laughs> so, because of this, modern Judaism is essentially Talmudic. Not so much biblical. It's essentially Talmudic in character. And by that, I mean that its focus is on various rabbinic interpretations of the Torah. Um, the average Jew today may assume he can't understand the Bible. After all, the rabbis, as they understand from the Talmud, have been debating and questioning it ever since the old days. For many Jews, then, religion is not simply reading scripture and living by it, but entering into this long tradition. It's weird, it's like a tradition of questions, a tradition of interpretations in search for the truth. It's an interesting thing, like that's your tradition is to question it and have different interpretations all the time. That'd be a really, really uh, interesting thing to be inside of. So it's no wonder then that today we can identify several main movements of Judaism uh, that have resulted from this interpretive tradition. The main ones, there's a lot, there's more, there's like four more, but Orthodox, Conservative, and Reformed are kind of the main different ones you'll see. Or for Orthodox, Conservative, and Reformed, um, which is on your handout if you wanna look it up. Something else that I got to read in class this week, um, this kind of was part of the disperse. Uh, there's this guy named Sabate Zevi, I think that's how you pronounce it. I'm going off Levi and I'm going off Isaiah, but Sabate uh, Zevi, he, this is like 16, the year's like 1665, right? And this guy, he just kind of like breaks the rules. He's just kind of like, ah, he's like James Dean or something. He's just, he breaks the Hebrew rules. He's super cool. And people think that he's like, oh man, he's so nuts. He's like 
when Jesus was here and he was breaking all the rules, even though Jesus didn't break the rules, um, he, he fulfilled them. But he got this huge movement and there's this, there's this kind of famous guy in uh, 1666 who was like, he just went to this public event and was like, Sabbatay Zevi is the Messiah. And people are like, okay. And so they just decided he was the Messiah and they followed him for a really long time and he had this huge movement. And then he, he goes to Constantinople to evangelize to like the leader there. He's captured by is, is Islam and they tell him, you must convert to Islam. And he's like, okay. <laughs> so they had this Messiah they were so excited about. He gets captured, and the second that it, there's any pressure on him, he's like, yeah, I'll convert. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Um, anyway, this broke the hearts of Jewish people. There was already a lot of fighting going on with this kind of crazy tradition of theirs called Kabbalah that's very, like, mysticism with the way they view numbers and the Bible and interpretations. And then this came along, and then it just failed. And they're like, ugh. And that was another part that broke them off into all these different groups of people, these Orthodox, conservative, and Reformed. So looking at the Orthodox Jews, so on one level, they're, they're, they're kind of like the ones who hope in the, in the law, right? So on one level, Orthodox Jews are easy for Christians to understand because they believe in the Hebrew Bible and they take it seriously. Uh, the number of Orthodox Jews worldwide, though, is comparatively small. So for Orthodox Jews, keeping the law as, they keep it as literal as possible, um, and that is their hope for salvation, is to keep the law as literal as possible. They try to be good. They try to be moral and get a good Jewish education. They observe the dietary laws you've probably heard of by keeping kosher. They obey the ceremonial laws and the Jewish holidays, which there are many. Uh, they wear certain symbols and they wear certain clothing based off of verses in Leviticus, the Old Testament, and they keep the Sabbath. So to ensure that they keep the Sabbath, they refrain from all work, and some of them go to extremes like not driving or using electricity at all. They also ask God to be merciful when they fall short. They observe the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur. Uh, not by offering a sacrificial lamb, as in Leviticus 16, because they recognize that the temple is no more. They just uh, are in synagogues. But rather, atonement comes from, this is important, atonement for them comes from heartfelt repentance and recommitment to observing God's law. Heartfelt repentance and recommitment to observing God's law. Like most Jews, the Orthodox, they don't conceive of original sin as making someone totally unable to please God the way that we do. They say that we're born with an inclination to evil and an inclination to good. They say we have both. And if we learn the right interpretation, all, those, uh, all that tradition of interpretations, if we can learn the right one of God's law, that is how we can follow and we can be good. So it's like we have these different ones, and if we could just tap in, if we could just do the work, then we can be good and God will be happy with us. That's orthodox. That's the more hardcore one. Conservative, which you think would be the hardcore one, conservative, is like in between. It's like religious, but it's modern. So conservative Judaism, they also just seek to follow the teachings of the rabbis but with more relevance to our modern times. So Jewish people in this stream, they stay, they might still, these are people you might still see them wearing their head covering. I guess the original pronunciation is a yarmulke, but we say yarmulke in America. But they'll have their yarmulke or their kippah. Uh, their dress though, the way that they dress, it'll be more contemporary than the Orthodox. I know this might sound dumb. It's like, I don't care about what they dress, but it, it matters to them a lot <laughs> what they dress as. Um, they still keep kosher. They uphold the basic theological beliefs of the Torah, uh, but they allow men and women to sit together in the synagogue and hold services in English as well as Hebrew. So I guess if you're going to go try to see what, see what it's all about, you might want to go to conservative ones so you can understand what they're saying. Um, 
And then you have Reform, which is funny, because uh, Reform Jew- Jews, you would think of like Reform Christianity, <laughs> like, let's get back to the Bible, let's do what the Bible says, ah, no, let's do it. And Reform Judaism is like the opposite, it's not Reformed at all. So um, they more so are, they're hoping in life, um, which is not always the best statement I hear. So with Reform Judaism, it's the most theologically liberal movement. Uh, Reformed Jews, they see the Bible as a collection of stories or myths. Um, most don't go to synagogue regularly, similar to Christians who only go to church on Easter or Christmas or Mother's Day. Uh, Reformed Jews, they probably think of themselves more as cultural Jews, it's just my culture, um, than as religious. So. It's not uncommon to find Reformed Jews who are agnostic, whose Judaism consists in a sense of tradition and morality, but nothing having to do with believing in God. And some abandoned faith in God after, after the Holocaust, a lot of Jews abandoned faith in God, and they reinterpreted their Judaism to make it mainly about ethics and about values. So evangelizing to a Reformed Jew from the Old Testament, it can be difficult because they don't have the knowledge of the Bible. <laughs> it's like talking to a person in church who, yeah, I've been going to church my whole life. I don't really read my Bible though. It's like, okay, how do we start? I guess we just need to read the Bible. Um, it, even if they do read, um, they don't believe it. So witnessing can be difficult, starting from scratch. So in all that history and those different kinds, putting that all together, how does this inform our evangelism? So Orthodox and conservative Jews, they essentially practice a religion of works righteousness, of works righteousness, grounded in history and tradition. And with these friends, we can emphasize that, we can emphasize our incurable sinful nature and our desperate need for a perfect savior to bear our sin. And Reformed Jews, on the other hand, are quite similar to our secular or agnostic neighbors. We should invite them to consider the possibility of the existence of God and the historical resurrection of Jesus. All that to say, the basic evangelism strategy with Jews, as you're probably finding as you've gone through this class, thank you for your faithful attendance, it's already been taught in this class. It's, it's the same thing over and over because the word of God breaks through these barriers. It knows no bounds. You should make friends. You should invite people into your life. You should pray for opportunities, please. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel. And you should share it faithfully. And particularly with Jewish friends or neighbors, use that making friends step, making friends with people to learn about their interpretation, to learn about their experience with Judaism. Ask good questions. Think about questions beforehand about what they believe, how they view some of the major historical events and views we've just covered. A question for you guys. So kind of looking at the history a little bit, kind of going off of scratch, like If you found yourself in kind of an evangelistic or just a biblical spiritual conversation uh, with a Jew, what kind of questions do you think you would ask to try to dig in, try to find your way in a little bit, maybe get the conversation to stir to Christ? What are their thoughts about the Messiah? Who is the Messiah? Yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> well, as we saw with the, the Sabbate, I mean, so they've got Seder. At Seder, they're, they've got a chair open. They're waiting for Elijah to come back. I was reading about it last night. They open a door. I mean, like part of the, part of the Seder is they, they open the door so Elijah can come in in case he shows up. Like... A lot of them just don't think he's come yet because they see and we'll talk about it in a moment, but they see the Messiah as this person that's going to liberate the Jews. They're going to they're liberate them, give them 
everything that they were supposed to have kind of promised in the Old Testament because things are kind of shaky now. And, uh, More or less the Jewish sell ups you read in the Bible. Yeah, that too, yeah. Yeah. That's a great reaction. Well, Israel. Ooh, my bad. I get it. I get it. That's a great question. So much, so much of their no, it's good. Caught up in the state of Israel, and we think, yeah, politics. Yeah. 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 And they look at their history. They look at the like a lot of them look back to the Holocaust. Yeah. Even today, they just look back. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but they look back and they're like. This has got to stop to our people. What, where, where are God's promises? It's like, it's a Jesus. They're like, no, it's not. Uh, and if you think about their history, like, it is amazing, even from a Jewish standpoint, to think God has preserved yeah. a remnant. Now, they may think differently of what a remnant is, but a remnant of his people for all these generations. Like, mm-hmm. and, you, and you go back and you say, like, where are the Moabites? Where are the Edomites? Where are the... Yeah. Amalekites, they're all gone. But Israel, they would say, still remains because as evidenced by the fact that there's one Jews all over the world, but there's a state uh, of Israel. So it's like, well, then he hasn't, he hasn't completely abandoned us. Yeah. And they don't talk about it in this lesson, but also they, they were victims of the Crusades. They were running like crazy from being killed by Christians, quote, Christians, end quote, who felt like killing people for not believing. They face a lot of oppression in their lives. Um, it's interesting. You think it would lead them to Christ, but it's, I feel like Satan's kind of been using it to make them get further away. You're like, no, we haven't been liberated. No. But yeah, they think it's gonna be a more physical thing. It's, they don't quite understand that it's, somebody is going to save me from my sin and make me okay with God. No. Which is why they're doing all the works and stuff like that. Any other questions you think you'd ask? Just like, oh, what's that hat mean? Or something. Like uh, not today. Not today. They're pretty close. They have a lot of similarities to Orthodox, but not today. What do, what do, what do you have to say about them? What about the Messianic Jews? Right. Yeah. Is that a question you'd ask them? or? To give a rundown on them? I'm seeing all this Oh, <laughs> no, not yet. No, the main ones we talked about are Orthodox, talked about Reformed and Conservative. Because Messianic could be Christians, basically. So. I think I would ask based on, your, based on this lesson. Yeah. I probably wouldn't need to ask if they're Orthodox unless I could recognize it. So I would probably ask. <laughs> We're in the closing. Are you Conservative or are you Reformed? Right. Uh, just because if they're Reformed, I'm probably going to treat it like you said. Yeah. This is just somebody who's a secular humanist who happens to have right. Jewish culture. Jewish culture. But if they're conservative, it may be more of a, what do you believe about the Messiah? Like, Sean yeah. said. Let's talk about the Old Testament. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a great way to say, oh man, you're a Jew? I love the Torah. Yes. Let me tell you about yeah. the Torah. The Tanakh. I love the Hebrew Bible, it's so good. Oh, thank you. It's as if they did anything. I love what David says in <laughs> Psalm 119. <laughs> Man, that Isaiah 53 is pretty sweet. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's kind of the stuff they get into as well. It's like... <laughs> some examples they give is, do you try to obey the Torah? How can you obey all those commandments? You know, that's a great question. Or... What do you do if you sin and you need atonement? You know, do you just like wait for the day of atonement? Um, how does your, yeah, how does your Jewish background influence the way you live each day? Yeah, that can get into the traditions. Do you pray to God and what do you ask him for? And what does it mean to be orthodox, conservative, or reform? What's that? It's called the tri-state initiative? Tri-faith. Tri-faith. <laughs> yeah, I think I was, I was talking to my dad yesterday. I think the, the rabbi over there is probably reformed. Or something like that. Yeah. I think you'd probably have to be to if get that thing together. <laughs> if you're in the leadership, you're very liberal because you think all roads lead to heaven. All roads lead to heaven. Yeah, you're a Jews for Jesus, more or less you're a messianic group. Right, right. Would you say you not? Hmm? Would you have to say? To be a messianic Jew? Yeah. Yeah, be a Christian. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, so going off what you're saying, Laura, one of the one of the best ways to build a friendship is uh, and to take the conversation towards spiritual things, um, while at the same time talking to Jews about just finding a way to talk to them about Christ is to talk to them about their tradition and their holidays. This is like an intense practice for them. Um, you could say the same thing if you're trying to talk to a non-Christian and all they want to do is ever play guitar. You'd ask them about guitar. <laughs> Why wouldn't you ask them about guitar? Uh, this is what they do, their traditions, their holidays. So you can ask them if they keep a kosher diet. Why do they keep a kosher diet? What is a kosher diet? Right. Uh, when a relative dies, um, Jews, they'll often visit with a grieving family for a whole week. It's called sitting Shiva. Ask what that means to them. Um, are they traveling home for the Passover? Find out what they believe the Passover means. That's a big one. What does the Passover mean? And talk to them about how, well, I see Jesus as the great Passover lamb who shed his blood so that God's judgment of death passes over us, as you may know, in Exodus 12. Because they're struggling with, like, the temple's destroyed, so why, why do the lamb? It's like, because we're the temples now, and the lamb was sacrificed, and it was Jesus. Um, and then Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, it's a key holiday to discuss because it relates to how Jews seek atonement. They seek it through fasting, repentance, and good works. Fasting, repentance, and good works. And most Jews, they celebrate Purim, so that, that's what remembers the events of the book of Esther, how the Israelites were spared uh, by God. But for many, that holiday is about wearing costumes, drinking, partying, and having a good time. So you can consider reading Esther with a Jewish friend or exploring how it's all about God's plan to preserve a people for himself. Well, that's all about Esther. True. If you want to read that. Right. <laughs> Uh, which he ultimately does through Christ. Um, you can ask about Hanukkah, you can ask about Rosh Hashanah, Sukkoth, and uh, other holidays and what they mean to them. Is that how you pronounce Sukkoth? I always say that and I feel like it's wrong. It's like Sukkoth or something. Sorry, we're breaking, we're breaking barriers here. Um, but ultimately... What? <laughs> I've never been a Jewish person either. Ultimately, uh, while knowing some background about Judaism and discussing these holidays, they're great ideas of getting started. There's no substitute for studying the word of God with somebody um, and letting it do its work. And that's what we'll look at now. There's a lot of uh, scripture in your handout. If you don't have one, Henry, they're right there on that armrest. Um, just laying out. But there's a lot of scripture in there. I wrote up the ones that we could read together. Thank you, Sean. Sean the Mon. So this is really helpful because a lot of Jews care deeply about the Old Testament. They call it the Hebrew Bible. And some, some don't, but it's still based off of it. Um, so thankfully, many Jews, they already respect the Old Testament. So I want us to look at a number of key biblical themes that you could use in evangelistic conversations. We'll look at four of them. So if you want, you could open your Bibles to Genesis 3.15. That's where we'll start. But these are the verses we'll read aloud. I don't know if you can you, by the way, this is my first time writing on a board in front of anybody. Can you see that? <laughs> you can read that. Can you read that, Tom, from the cheap seats? Thanks. Genesis 3.15 is where we'll start. So one small note, like we've kind of been mentioning, um, Jewish people, they feel strange about the term Old Testament. So if you want to come in, you know, kind of like not immediately losing them um, for some people who are more like very traditional about being Hebrew and Jewish, you might consider calling the Hebrew, calling it the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh. Um, T-A-N-A-K. The Hebrew Bible is how I hear it a lot, especially on the... Uh, the Bible Project podcast it says Hebrew Bible, Hebrew Bible, Hebrew Bible. Um, so let's begin. So there's two ways uh, to get to Christ from the Torah um, out of many. Uh, the first five books of the Tanakh are the Torah. And uh, since Jewish people, and in case you don't, 
in, just in case you don't know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, okay? And since Jewish people uphold these books as the most important part of scripture, let's look at them. So the first big theme we want to look at is the coming king. You like chose, you chose, I bought all these new markers. You chose like, just throw it away. Sick of those markers. They bum me out, keep me up at night. So the coming king, the first big theme, the coming king. Um, The goal here is to show, like Sean was asking about, that the messianic hope is is central to the Torah. The central to the Torah is the Messiah and that Jesus fulfills that hope. So here are the key verses there. Somebody could please read Genesis 3.15. Hopefully at this point in this evangelism class, we're really starting to love Genesis 3.15. (laughs) It's becoming our new John 3.16. Tom's got it. All right. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. So, right from the fall, God tells Satan that an offspring of Eve will bruise his head. The whole rest of the book, this should, this should be like, oh, this is really important. Let's keep thinking about this through the rest of the Old Testament. The whole rest of the book of Genesis is asking the question, who is that going to be? Who is that guy? What's he talking about? Who is that guy? It's going to defeat Satan? I want to see who that is. Um, we learn in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that it's through Abraham's descendants that God will bless all the families of the earth. Okay, so now we're starting to see who it's going to come from. And then in Genesis 17, 5 through 7, God tells Abraham that kings will come from his line. So it seems that the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 will be a royal figure. Okay. And uh, you'll notice as each prophecy, Satan will want to kill off the error think he is. Right. Yep. And somebody, uh, somebody turn to Genesis uh, 49.10. Awesome. So Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, and he says this. Um, so it's from the line of Judah, right? It says that the scepter shall not depart from Judah. So from the line of Judah, a forever king will come, whom all nations on earth will obey. See, it's, it's beautiful. Like, as you go through it, it's slowly breaking down this, this question, this amazing theme So if we look at Numbers, so this prophecy, it's reinforced in Numbers 24, 17 through 19. It's a long section, but there's similar language used to describe a coming king. Some of the excerpts are, a star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. And then in Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20, we learn that the king of Israel should write a copy of the whole Torah for himself so he can live by it. That's like something that the king should be doing. Write the Torah yourself so you can live by it. You can know it that deeply. So it seems that Israel's hope is supposed to be in a king who fully obeys the law of God. This is starting to sound very familiar, like somebody that we know in the New Testament. Fully obeys the law of God, understands it with precision, the kind of person that would come in and be like, you're a teacher of the Israelites and you don't understand this? That's the kind of king we're looking for. Can somebody turn to Daniel 7.14, please? Or all of you. So Jewish people, they may not be used to the idea of seeing a messianic figure in the Torah. They may, they associate these books with language of law, not language of a coming king. So it's, it's interesting. It's like they hear Genesis 3.15 at the beginning and they're like, cool, definitely hasn't happened yet. The Old Testament's about law and being good. It's not about, he didn't show up. It's just about being good. We're still waiting. So it may be useful to show that all of this language about, and the verses are in your handout, 
All of this language about a ruler with universal dominion gets picked up in one of the most famous messianic prophecies, the vision of the Son of Man. Can you please read Daniel 7.14? Amen. And from here, it may be useful to study or to look together, talk about the first couple chapters of Matthew uh, to see how Jesus' genealogy, it gets traced back to David. It gets traced back to Judah. It gets traced back to Abraham. And you can see that the Magi come to pay him tribute, as was predicted in Genesis 49.10. They came. They did that. So the coming king. Another big theme is God's provision of forgiveness. This is kind of where the big disconnect happens. But So we also know that the Messiah did not only come to be Israel's great king, but also to provide lasting forgiveness for those who repent and believe and make him their Lord. So this is a key difference between Christianity and Judaism. For Jews, the Messiah is to bring deliverance for the Jews, to destroy any enemies of the Jews, and to bring world peace. Uh, They didn't conceive of the Messiah primarily bringing reconciliation between man and God, but we can show from the Torah that that reconciliation, that is man's greatest need, and it is God who would provide it through a great Passover lamb. It's talked about multiple times in the Old Testament. Uh, Looking at Exodus 34, 6, that's a good place to start. Uh, We learn that God is merciful and gracious, but he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. How can God be forgiving and just at the same time? It's incredible. Somebody read Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and complained, the Lord, the Lord, God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness, merciful and gracious. And as the Jewish person you're talking to probably knows, in the Torah, God answers that question by providing sacrifices. And we hear those described in Leviticus. You can draw them to Leviticus 16, where you can see how atonement needed to be made every year due to people's constant sin. Uh, Could somebody go with uh, Leviticus 17.11? It shows that you can see that God's ordained way for accomplished forgiveness is through the death of an innocent. The death of an innocent. If you could read Leviticus 17.11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Pretty, pretty self-explanatory. <laughs> It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Um, That should remind them of the Passover lamb that's described in Exodus 12 and 13. When God's angel would see the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of the Jews, he would pass over their homes and spare their sons from death. The important thing to see here is that God established Passover as a yearly holiday so the Jews would not forget this image. It's an image of substitution. The lamb dies in the place of someone else. Let that be a concern. Let that be a warning to you. Do not forget. He made this holiday so they would not forget and they forgot and they still celebrate it. Stay close to Christ. Don't forget what you know. Stay in the word. So these concepts prepare you well to bring up passages like John 129, um, where John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or even better, to do a study of Hebrews 7 through 10, um, which explains how Jesus fulfills all the Old Testament sacrifices. A third big theme is messianic prophecies. So, of course, the messianic hope in the Hebrew Bible only becomes clearer throughout salvation history. 
So you'll want to explore some key prophecies from the writings and prophets with the Jewish person you're talking to. So here's a sampling of some of the clearest ones. This one comes from Mike, Matthew, Matthew pretty quickly. Micah 5.2, it says that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That would be a very hard, that'd be very hard for a false Messiah to achieve since you can't decide where you're born. Uh, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17 says, for God's promise to David that one of his sons would reign forever. Okay, so this is starting to tie into like Abraham that's gonna be a king. And then you hear in 2 Samuel, David is one of your offspring. Oh, okay, cool. And then Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, if somebody wants to read that, this predicts the Messiah's entrance into Jerusalem. If you'll, when it's read, you'll hear, he comes in on a donkey and it's predicted and it happened and Jesus fulfilled it. So Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. Cool. Awesome. So you've got the king there, you've got the donkey there, you've got the dominion, you've got the peace. It's all there. Um, Psalm 22, this is a great one. Definitely write this one down. Psalm 22, um, it previews the Messiah's suffering on the cross, including 22.7, the mocking of passersby, 22.15, Jesus' thirst, 22.18, the dividing of his garments, and 22.16, the piercing of his hands and feet. Psalm 22, all predicted. In Psalm 16.10, it foretells how the Messiah would not forever be abandoned to death. Uh, Peter uses this text in Acts 2 to show that Christ's resurrection was predicted by God. And then finally, we have the crown jewel of Old Testament prophecies. What is this crown jewel? Do you guys know? Isaiah 53, boom. So not surprisingly, got it quick. Um, this text has received many different interpretations from Jewish scholars, as is their way. Their tradition is, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. Um, so sadly, they seem to have a vested interest in explaining how Isaiah 53, how it could not be about the Messiah, uh, remember that the Jewish idea of a Messiah is mainly that he is a victorious king. He's a victorious king. But we see here in Isaiah 53 that this king would also be God's suffering servant. That just won't do for them. He would be pierced for the transgressions of God's people and take their punishment. And lastly, coming out of the Old Testament, we got good old Matthew designed for the Jews written by the Jew. We can look at studying the Gospels together. Um, so at this point, we see why it's so important for our Jewish neighbors to learn about Jesus himself from the Gospels and the writings of the Jews who followed him. I mean, they were Jewish and they knew him. Just the idea of reading the New Testament, though, that can be a huge obstacle to a Jewish person. That could even offend them. Um, but if they can read a Gospel with you, if they can do it, which God can do anything, They'll quickly notice, very quickly, they'll see the Jewishness of Jesus. Getting to read the gospel with a Jewish person is so crucial because Jesus was culturally Jewish. He was not white and Baptist. <laughs> he was Jewish. And all his disciples were Jewish. And all the New Testament writers, except Luke, were Jewish. A simple fact, which may make the Jewish person you're witnessing to much more willing to read it. You know, even if they think they're wrong, well, well they were Jews. Kind of like, check it out. Um, but open up to a book like Matthew, and your friend will quickly learn that Jesus was no ordinary rabbi. Uh, could somebody please read Matthew one twenty three? 
Yes, this is definitely more than just a rabbi. A miraculous birth, which is immediately answered. Why this miraculous birth? Why, why be born of a virgin? What's going on there? Oh, it's God with us. Oh, I should probably figure out how these two things work together. That's, that's big stuff. So he is Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, somebody look at Matthew 9, 5 through 6. Uh, Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And all the rabbis knew that only God could do that. So Matthew 9, 5 through 6. Somebody can read that, please. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Whew. That's more than a rabbi, for sure. In the same vein, looking at kind of Matthew 8 and Matthew 9, um, you'll see these divine prerogatives that Jesus does. He exercises these in Matthew. Through his authority over nature, he does this. That's in uh, 8, 26 through 27, the calming of the storm. He has um, authority over demons. That's in 829 through 32. He takes them out. It's like, they're like, oh, have you come to torture us before the time? He's like, no, <laughs> not yet. Soon enough. And then he sends them into the pigs and then they kill the pigs. Uh, he has authority over disease, the woman that he heals, 922. And over death, the little girl he raises from the dead in 925. So then note the reason that Jesus said he would die. He tells them why in Matthew 26, 28. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We just read about this in Leviticus 17, 11, For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And he is saying, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out. Not to, to liberate you from other people. It's to... It's for the forgiveness of sins and to make you right with God. So do note that most Jews will find the idea that Jesus is God, they'll find this nearly incomprehensible. We shouldn't shy away from it, though, uh, since it's the clear teaching of Scripture. You don't want to shy away from the truth. The truth will set you free. But it may help to contextualize your conversation with a Jewish person by simply contrasting Jesus with the great Old Testament figures using Christ's own words. Um, Abraham, Moses, David, and the great prophets, they never said, like, said things like Jesus that would, they never said like, give my life as a ransom for many in Mark 10, 45. They never said anything like that. Only Jesus said in John 8, John 8 12, I am the light of the world. And in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Since some of these clearest statements are in the book of John, that could be a good book too, to lead them to, as it is written so that you would believe. So don't forget as well to, to pray that as we share these truths with Jews or as we think about them, and a lot of this too for us is going to come up with conversations that we have with people. People talk about, what about the Jews? What, I know they're a big part of the Bible. What, what are they doing? I don't, I don't get it. This can, kind of stuff can help with witnessing to people who are just interested in Judaism and they want to have a conversation about it. Always finding a way to lead to Christ is a good, it's always a good thing to learn in everything we do. But let's just pray that the Lord will open the hearts of people as we talk about these things to believe just as he's done for so many centuries. So just a couple more things, uh, just uh, some common questions that uh, we deal with. So as we love our Jewish neighbors, we shouldn't only proclaim truth to them. We should listen. Um, we should listen to their questions. We should provide thoughtful answers, as the Bible says, with patience and gentleness. So as we wrap up today, consider these three common questions that Jews often raise and how we might answer them faithfully. We've talked about this quite a bit in class, but it's going to keep coming up for the rest of your life, um, just dealing with evil. Um, so the first question, it's a theological question. Where was God during the Holocaust? What happened there? Sick day? 
Uh, we can't underestimate how much this awful event overshadows the worldview of many Jews. Many Jews are very affected by this even today. They're taught this as they grow up. And now the problem of evil is truly difficult to answer, and you shouldn't feel pressure to offer a simplistic explanation. But first, as we've said before, uh, when dealing with uh, rejection, um, it's important to listen and empathize with the pain many Jews feel having lost relatives in such a heinous manner. And then if they really want to discuss God's relationship with evil, it's probably best to stick with what we know in the Bible, that God hates evil, and that he will judge all those who have committed terrible atrocities and don't repent. He says in Romans 12:19, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And God also, he works through, um, he works good through man's sin. Doesn't make him sin, at least that's not what I believe, but he works good through man's sin. He can take things that are, it's the way he is, he can take things that are awful and he can make them good. And even if we can't comprehend how, he can do it. And uh, we have to make the point delicately in Genesis 50:20, a passage they would know if they read their Bibles. We see that Joseph's brothers meant for evil, but God meant it for good. And in Acts 4, 27 through 28, we learn that God even predestined that evil people would crucify Jesus, by which he accomplished immeasurable good. Still, we shouldn't be like Job's friends. We shouldn't pretend to know exactly why any instance of suffering happens. That's very scary. I pray nobody here becomes that kind of person. Just remember in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it says that we see now in a mirror dimly. Lastly, when it comes to where was God during the Holocaust, remind them of who Jesus is. This is, this is the beauty of what Jesus went through. Jesus has tasted unjust suffering. So he has compassion for all of those who suffer unjustly. Hebrews 2.18 says, says, because he himself suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He experienced a horrific death, even though he, like no one else who's ever lived, was perfectly innocent. Since God's in charge of history, did you raise your hand? <laughs> uh, since God's in charge of history, why did so many Jews in particular have to die this way? And ultimately, we don't know. Um, what we do know is that he invites all Jews, all Gentiles, to come to him for eternal rest. That's from Matthew 11. So we must act on what we know. When I say what we know, what we know in the Bible, not what we can't understand, what we know in the Bible. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 is always a great antidote for the mind when confused. A second question, it's a cultural and historical question. Isn't Christianity anti-Semitic? Isn't the very thing you believe attacking me, right? So Jews often see our evangelism through the lens of this long history of Christian persecution, like we were talking about the Crusades. And uh, in this view, trying to convert a Jew is another form of oppression against Jewish identity. After all, the reasoning goes, if we believe that Christianity is superior, that means we believe Judaism is inferior and needs to be corrected, improved, or replaced. So how should we respond? That applies to pretty much anybody as well. Well, we should acknowledge that hurtful things have been done by so-called Christians. Current times, not afraid to say it, Westboro Baptist. But explain that these actions are contrary to God's word. They're not consistent with it. We should not judge a movement or religion by the deeds of all who align with it, but by its basic teachings. And that's something that you should just take with you anyway. Because I know a lot of Christians that get so depressed and frustrated because of what other Christians do and what other Christians say. Some of them not even Christians, people that just claim God is good and then they do terrible things. Focus on the basic teachings of the Bible. That is your core. Not these people around you. That is your core. That's what you should never sway from. And that's what you should teach other people as well. We should point out that the Jewish foundation 
there's a, there's a huge Jewish foundation for our faith. So, you know, oh, you're attacking me. It's anti-Semitic. Well, we have a huge Jewish foundation. If you ever get a chance, there's a great, it's on YouTube. It's also a podcast. Ben Shapiro invited John MacArthur onto his show. And when I heard about it, I was freaking out. I was like, this is going to be crazy because Ben Shapiro is an insane debater and John MacArthur loves the Bible. And for somebody made a meme afterward. It was very funny. It's just Ben Shapiro's face like this. And it's like, my face after uh, John MacArthur preaches me the gospel from the Old Testament for an hour straight or something. If you ever want to listen to that, that's a great example of witnessing to anybody, but especially witnessing to a Jew. He just, he just keeps steady to the word of God with Ben Shapiro this huge debater, very intelligent man. He just keeps going. He keeps going to Isaiah 53. This is, he's like, this is a Jewish foundation. It's so important. The Old Testament is why I'm a Christian. It's great. So, but Paul says that Gentiles are like a wild plant grafted into the, quote, nourishing root of the olive tree, end quote, of the Jewish people of God. That's Romans 11:17. So, we're grafted into this beautiful tree. And if Jesus is truly the new Adam who came to redeem God's people, then it's unloving not to tell Jews about him. So explain that your goal isn't to convert someone, only God can do that. Your goal is to love your friend by telling them the Messiah has come. These things that you're waiting for, they've happened. Let me show you through my life how. And finally, just one more question. This is a more personal question. It's an interesting one. It's kind of like you were uh, hinting at earlier. Like, well, aren't they like messianic? I mean, don't they just believe the Bible? So the question is, if I believe in Jesus, will I stop being Jewish? All these things that I'm doing, does it just end for me? Like, that sounds devastating to me. I love these things. So sadly, opposition to Jesus as Messiah has become so characteristic of Judaism that many think if they accept Christ, they won't be Jewish anymore. Of course, that's not what Paul, Peter, John, or any of the disciples thought. For them, the most Jewish thing in the world was to count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, their Lord. So still, we have to help our Jewish neighbors count the cost Jesus commands us to take our cross and follow him. There's a cost. And he told his 12 disciples, all of them Jews, that they would experience bitter opposition from their own family members for pledging allegiance to his kingdom. Understand that family loyalty continues to be a major cultural value of Jews today. They have a lot to lose. And it's, it's a kindness to explain to Jews considering Christ that if they believe, their life truly will never be the same. They'll no longer depend on eating kosher, keeping the Sabbath, and obeying commandments to be assured of God's redemption. Uh, they may choose to continue enjoying some of the Jewish cultural traditions, but it'll have to be in a very different way since they will see these holidays and practices as fulfilled already in Christ. Their family very well may disown them for following Jesus. The costs are very great, but as Jesus, the greatest rabbi said, and far more than a rabbi, in Mark 8.36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? I love that one. It stings, stings real good. So only the spirit of Christ can open the hearts of us to see that Jesus is more precious than the unfulfilled hopes of Judaism or any other religion. So let's pray that God would give us many opportunities to share this good news. Mm-hmm.